meditation Swamiji recommends for this. This is all about speaking in silence and he's trying to get us to understand how much tension we carry in our speech and in our compulsion to speak. So he wants us to understand how to relax the whole mouth and tongue and all of that area which is very close to the brain. So he says, tense the muscles of your head, the throat, the tongue, and the jaw. Then quickly relax them. And he says to repeat this exercise several times. So why don't we do that? Tense the throat, the jaw, the tongue. Vibrate it with tension then as we're taught. Exhale, relax completely. Repeat that a couple of more times. Now concentrate on just the relaxation side of it. Especially just feel where the tongue rests in the mouth. We don't think about it very much, but oftentimes we're actually holding the tongue in a very tense position. So really just try to let it relax completely. And the jaw, the throat, all of the elements of communication, the throat, the jaw, the tongue, the mouth. Now feel that all of those areas are not only relaxed, but they're so relaxed that there's just a great open space right in that whole lower part of your face. That all the energy there is just so at peace. It doesn't have to be held in readiness for anything. And that all the energy that was concentrated there, getting ready to outwardly communicate, he says, withdraw all that back to the medulla. The medulla is the origin point of ego. So the ego directs energy into the mouth, into the jaw, into the tongue, in order to assert itself. So now let's just withdraw into the relaxation of the watcher, the observer silent witness. And then, of course, take the energy from the medulla and by concentrating at the spiritual eye, draw that into the spiritual eye. So what we've done is we've relaxed all of this compulsion to communicate, drawn it back into a state of silent witness, and then lifted that witness to the point between the eyebrows. So there should be a great relaxation then the whole lower part of the face, internally, externally. Now feel that in that calmness there's this great expansive space around us. We've withdrawn the need to assert ourselves and in that relaxation we feel the self instead just expanding out. Feel this great space just moving through us the energy flowing into the medulla, upward to the spiritual eye, and just as if the head and the face were no obstruction, that all of it is just expanding space. Feel that that expanding space going out from you, out to infinity, just expanding in all directions, just letting go of all sense of closely held identity, 
until the sense of self is just flowing outward in all directions. All of that begins, you see, with just letting go, softening the need to hold ourselves separate, withdrawing into the silent witness, upward to the spiritual eye, and then in a great relaxation of tension, spreading out to infinity. Feel the infinite quiet that comes when we silence our own compulsive need to speak. Now please affirm with me, peace enters me through silence. I enjoy stillness in myself. When I can listen to thy silent inner whispers, peace enters me through silence. I enjoy stillness in myself when I can listen to thy silent inner whispers. Peace enters me through silence. I enjoy stillness in myself when I can listen to thy silent inner whispers. Om. Peace. Amen. We are working on Lesson 19 of 26. We're actually making progress through this one. This one is called Talk Less and Do More. And it's the shortest lesson so far, which seems quite appropriate. And it's ironic that I have to think now what to talk about for an hour and a half on this very short lesson about not talking. So, so it's a small challenge, but I think one that I can rise to. Before, did you have a question? Yes, Edwin had a question from last week, I remember. I can't remember the question, I just remember that you asked it. Okay. Yeah, last time you were talking about desires. Desires, uh, yes. Yeah, because I listened to one of Master's uh, CDs and says, if you have a desire, just get over it and do it. <laughs> and then it's just kind of in a slim line of which desire should we go after and just get it over? Or Yes, of course. Know. Last week the class was on advertising and I was extremely intrigued by... Swamiji explaining the justification for advertising because on one hand the basic practice of yoga is that we try to get over our desires and that we're trying to transcend them all and have no desire except the desire for God. And then here because he's teaching material success and business, he has a whole class about advertising, how to get people to want what you're selling and to come and buy it. So he was trying to resolve what could quite naturally appear to be an ethical conflict Um, So he proposed this thought, which was extremely intriguing to me, which I've been thinking about ever since, also this last week or two weeks, week. Um, Because what he says is that all of life is a quest for fulfillment and that before we understand that our fulfillment rests in God, we need to move through the quest for fulfillment always seeking to improve our experience of life 
more and more dynamically until by that quest for fulfillment we gradually discover on our own uh, where our true fulfillment lies. And that was the logic that he was using. This is slightly irrelevant, but, you know, we've talked in this course a lot about, I mean, at different times, about you you have to learn from experience. You really can't know something. I had the, the most absurd experience of that just today. For as long as I've been married to David, he's always, every time I set something on the car, he'll always say to me, be careful and don't scratch the car. You know, I'll put the garbage bag on to carry it over to the, or I'll set anything on there. He always says that. And a little piece of me has always thought, he's just so picky about everything. So I had his car. I put my little suitcase on the car. to opened the trunk, and it was a little too heavy, so I dragged it across, and there were little metal things on it. I made these absolutely gorgeous scratches on the front of his car. It was so unnerving to me. I was up at Durgan Vidura's. I asked Vidura to call him and tell him that I'd done it. So by the time I got home... Because I knew man to man, you know, they could just talk about women and it would be a lot more relaxing than him actually having to see me. But it was, it, it was, very, it was very interesting to me because I've never really believed him. All this time, I've never really believed, because I'm so out of touch with cars and things, I never really believed how easily a car can scratch. I mean, it's, it's a very tiny thing and a silly thing. But truthfully, he's been saying this to me for all my life and I never knew it. Until today, I scratch the car, just doing nothing, except just pulling my little suitcase across. I mean, how many things, even if we give lip service to it, and we think that it's true, it's completely different than when you actually realize, oh my gosh, look how easily this can happen. Look how easily a whole incarnation can be wasted. Look how easily I can get drawn into some crazy desire, and then just go off in some direction. It doesn't matter how often people tell you. You'll only really know when you really know. And one of the things about the spiritual path that's extremely important is the word is sincerity. We have to be completely sincere. If we don't really understand something, we don't have to refute it and always be telling people, well, I don't really know if that's true. We don't have to be obnoxious. But we have to be really honest within ourselves. And we have to behave really sincerely with God and not try to sort of put on a face that we don't have. You know, if we really deepen our hearts, have a longing for something, we can't just say, well, I shouldn't feel that way. We have to really know. Now, how do you know what to go after and what to reject? Well, first of all, I mean, when one tries to be self-disciplined, one tries to be elevated in one's thinking and generous and not self-indulgent. So one should not simply, any little harebrained idea that rises in the mind, feel, oh, well, I've just got to go and chase that. Oh, let me, let me give you one more thought on this. I was reading Sister Gyanamata's book, um, God Alone, which is her letters to Master and her letters um, to other disciples. She was Master's most advanced woman disciple, and, you know, just the, the, that book is one of the finest books of sp- in spiritual writing ever. With the exception of Swami's writing, it's really the most moving I've ever read. Of course, Master's included. But there's a little verse in there that I've, I've read the first time decades ago that I've always remembered. She writes to Master just some loving letter about um, her devotion for him and her heart and the simplicity of her love for her guru. Um, she had just had this wonderful love affair with Yogananda inside her heart. I mean, a divine love affair. And she, she writes to him that um, years ago, 
she had heard a popular song on the radio, a musical operetta, she called it, and there was a little, just a popular song in the verse, and she, she always remembered it, and she wrote it to Master. I've always remembered it. I am just a simple maid, foolish and unheeding, yet I follow unafraid where my heart is leading. And she wrote that to Master as the epitome of her relationship with him, that she's just, she considered herself just a simple person, even though she was a brilliant person, a brilliant, she had a brilliant mind, and she was also, of course, a, a self-realized soul by the time her life ended. But that's how she saw herself, just a simple maid without regard for sophisticated things, but she's unafraid to follow her heart. She just goes where it takes her. I remember uh, years ago, Swami Kriyananda was in a particular situation, and he was following a course of action that other people who were close to him were unable to embrace with the same courage that he did. And I remember him saying, he was speaking of a couple of other people, he said, well, they're not used to following their heart in the way that I am. And you think of Swamiji as being very um, intelligent in his mind, but really he follows his heart. He said he's just accustomed to when his heart is moved in a certain direction, Of course, now, he can do that because with a lifetime of self-discipline, when there is a strong impulse from the heart, you don't have to be so suspicious of it. If your heart has been an idiot and has led you into a lot of trouble, the mere fact that you have a strong feeling is not necessarily a recommendation for following it. So a certain amount of common sense has to come into this. Um, But I always remembered that because I, I wouldn't have thought of him first in that way, but it it helped me see him more clearly as he saw himself. I'm accustomed to it, he said. I just don't question. I'm foolish and unheeding. I just go where my heart is leading. Now, in Gyanamata's letter, where she writes that little verse to Master, which I've remembered all these years, this morning I read the rest of the letter, and she said, God draws us from fulfillment to fulfillment to fulfillment until we find our final fulfillment in him. And it was just exactly the same statement that we're drawn, we're, we, we're just, we, we have to keep seeking fulfillment because otherwise, as I was saying, we become very dry and we don't become detached. We simply become desiccated and discouraged if we're no longer imagining. <clears throat> when uh, the King of England fell in love with Mrs. Wallace Simpson, and had to abdicate and become, he became the Duke of Windsor, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. It was a great love story, you know, from 60 years ago that we all only know as history. But at the time when that was happening, um, there was a great deal of criticism um, leveled at Wallace Simpson, the woman, because she was a divorcee, which was really scandalous because it was less common in those days, and she was in love with the king, and the king was going to have to stop being the king because of his love for her. And so people, there was a lot in the newspapers. And Master Paramahansa Yogananda actually wrote a letter defending Wallace Simpson. And he defended the fact that, you know, he defended the fact that she was divorced on the basis of, you see, she's determined to find a perfect love. And when one didn't want... want work out, she turned aside, but you see she has the determination and the courage to go on. Interesting, isn't it? Because he just turned it in a different way, which is that she had the optimism, the courage, 
um, the, the willingness to follow her heart, to defy convention. And he, he praised that rather than criticizing it. People wanted her to just curl up and, you know, be, be um, settle for less. And she refused to. She, she kept moving. So um, those are interesting examples. Now, um, when I was thinking about this more specifically, I'll give you one example from my own life because I've had a few little experiences, not a lot. When I was, um, before I was married, when I was living as a renunciate at Ananda Village, very, we lived very, very simply and very poor. And I lived in this little trailer that I'd lived in for seven or eight years. I lived in several different trailers, but I was living in this trailer. And I mean, these were, these were little travel trailers that we lived in. You know, like I paid $100 for it. And it was just a piece of junk, you know, that I hauled up from some place and just sat on the ground there. And that way we could just have instant housing, these little one-person trailers. Um, and also, because they didn't have any foundation, they, we didn't involve any building codes. As our city planner said, they were just the equivalent of cows. You know, you just sort of pulled them on and they could move around. They, you know, they had no impact on anything. So we were able to just pull them onto the bare land that we had and we could all live there. So many of us lived in trailers. And for a small woman such as myself, a small trailer was perfectly adequate. I lived alone. Um, But I had this thought one day, sitting in that trailer, that it wasn't good for me to live in that space anymore. It wasn't even like I was discontent, but it just wasn't good for me. I needed a more expansive environment. I needed just more space. I needed more beauty. These were not values that I would have thought of. It just crossed my mind, but it crossed my mind very profoundly that I really needed a different reality for for my own uh, spiritual well-being. Now, the position I was in at that time, and still am for that matter, I I work for Ananda. I get very little money for the work that I do. Um, But it's my dharma to do this. It's my my divine responsibility. I I have to serve Master's work. And I'm perfectly capable. I mean, I was in my early 30s then, I'm in my early 60s now, but I still feel I'm perfectly capable. If I ever set my mind to money, I wouldn't have any trouble acquiring it. I just feel like I have the will and the talent to be able to do it. But at that point in my life, at the age of 31 or 32, in order to set my mind to money, which is what I would have to do in order to obtain something that I really felt was spiritually right for me, but that action to set my mind for money would have been a wrong action. So I I saw both realities at the same time. I I see that this is what I need, but I'm not willing to turn away from a higher dharma in order to get it. So I simply said to Master, okay, this is your problem. Because what else can I do about it? I can't do anything about it. And I more or less forgot about it. I just, I didn't let it um, nag at me. It was just a fact. But it was a fact I couldn't resolve honorably, so I couldn't resolve it. About a year later, I had um, uh, decided to marry David. I'd left that single life. I'd moved out of that trailer. I was living at that time in this dome in another part of Ananda. For Ananda at that time, it was a really classy dwelling. And uh, it was white on the inside. It had a blue carpet. It had sunlight coming in. We had little crystals hanging the windows that made rainbows. You know, it was pretty um, high class. 
And I just woke up one morning and I looked up at the curved ceiling of the dome and I looked at the rainbow lights being projected on the wall and I looked at the beautiful blue rug and I remembered. I said, oh my gosh, look what happened. Here I am. I'm, I'm just completely in a whole other environment and this is the environment that you know, my soul was telling me I needed. But I never lifted a finger in between. I made, I made a number of decisions, but I never made a decision to seek that. But because it was righteous, it came to me. So I think the first rule is um, don't ever turn away from a higher dharma just because you desire something that's not included in it. The other is push things away and see if they come back. You know, in our culture, people have just the opposite attitude. Oh, if you don't grab it, you know it's going to slip away. No, no, no. Your own will come to you. And if you have any uncertainty about it, push it away. And certainly, don't deviate from your course in order to grab it. Now, this is not advice for passive people. There are certain premises involved here. If you're lazy, if you're cowardly, um, if, you, if, you don't, if you can't concentrate well, if you, you know, just don't have the courage to just set your will to something and put out the patient application of willpower required, then advice is slightly different. But if you're living, you know, if you're getting up every day and doing the best you can do in the circumstances that are giving to you, given to you, and especially if your circumstances are honorable and devoted to God, um, and there's other things that are coming in that you can't fit into that dharmic picture, then hold to the dharma, hold to whatever you have in front of you, and let Divine Mother figure out what she's going to do with the rest of it. And it's amazing. It's really, I mean, it's it's much more than amazing. It's extremely moving to watch how Divine Mother will take care of you if you are doing your part. And your part is not so much to quest selfishly, but to give wholeheartedly. You know, just if you're giving wholeheartedly, you don't have to worry about anything else. If you're not giving wholeheartedly, that's a serious question. And that's what you need to do first. But once you are doing that, you can have complete confidence that God will not punish you for doing that. And if you do feel like you don't have enough in your life and this and that, ask where you can give more. Where can I give more? What more can I do to create the flow in my life? And then it'll come. It'll come much more from creating the flow than it'll come from just sort of seeking for yourself. Does that make sense? Experiment with it. It's tons of fun. It really is to just watch how things happen. And you also have to be patient because sometimes things take time. I found, and this is a much bigger answer to what you did, but you know, I, I became dedicated to the spiritual path um, when I was 22. is was when I met Swamiji. That was really when I became serious. Uh, and prior to that, you know, I had a lot of... I never had any ambition because nothing ever looked worth, worth going after to me. That was a, a cause of great concern for me that I couldn't find anything to be ambitious about until I got onto the spiritual path. But nonetheless, there were a lot of now, you know, you might say the sense of what I might give. You know, a sense of potential talent or potential self-expression might be the right words. That were never really clearly at the surface, but were always under there. Or desires for this thing or that thing. But I have seen over all these years 
that as long as I just continually stick to the spiritual path, absolutely everything has been included. You know, just things I never expected. Tremendous amount of travel, meeting people, just the opportun- just endless opportunities that I never had to seek specifically. But by just seeking to serve God, it was like nothing inside of you is going to be wasted. He's not going to... If, if you're sincere and willing to put energy behind it, you don't have to worry. It'll all be asked of you. As long as you're yourself seeking the full opportunity to give. Fair enough? Yeah. Could this be... I mean, since I was little, I would never listen to my parents because I had to really... I said, well, they don't know. I have to experience myself right. to order to find out. And through life, I've noticed that the only way to get over it is by falling on my face and getting up and continue. And I right. just find out myself that when you give advice to somebody else, they just don't listen to you. It <laughs> seems like they'll have to experience themselves in order to understand. So, so is wh- that the same thing about well, you get- fulfillment? That's the reason that they don't listen to you? Yes, they don't listen because vibrationally they're not able to comprehend the truth behind your words. People can understand words easily. I, I could understand that the, the car might scratch, but I really didn't know that the car would scratch. I mean, someone might tell you that, you know, to spend so much energy just trying to get money that you ignore your family is not going to make you happy in the end. But it's not until you've got all that money and you don't have a family anymore that you say, oh... It didn't work. You know, and then the, then the next time somebody says it to you, karmically you remember, even if you don't remember in this lifetime, and you kind of hear it, and it's there. Now, that doesn't mean, though, it's not worthwhile to speak. And, I mean, this is about talking, so we're coming into that. But you have to be intuitively sensitive enough to know when the advice is going to fall on fertile soil and when you're just throwing pearls before swine. You know, just giving people something they don't want. So it doesn't really do any good to give people advice they're not ready to hear. So you have to be very judicious in the way you speak. The way Swamiji has always done it, which I, you know, which is the best, is he always starts slowly. I, I, <laughs> I, I grew up in a household where debate was the uh, mode of communication that we used. I mentioned this to you before. My brother was actually a state champion debater and placed... Um, you know, placed respectably in the national debate contest, and it was the oldest, and I did a little bit of debate myself. And um, it, we always communicated by debate. Now, the, now this is how, how, how it manifests, manifested in our family, which I, I can see as a, a way, which is when you're in debate, you have about three minutes, and you have to absolutely present your best arguments. So you put your best arguments on the table with all the force you have, And then you sit back and you wait for the next person to put their best arguments on the table. So everybody puts their best arguments on the table. And then if you're you're part of my family growing up, everybody's put their best arguments out. And then we also, then we act as the judge. And then we evaluate all the arguments and then decide which is the best argument. I mean, even that very word argument, that's how we would converse. It was not an argument. But you always started full blast, you know, because you had to get your best arguments out there. And that's how you conversed. So it, it took me decades to even realize that, that, first of all, people were not attracted to that system of communication. And the second thing was that it's not helpful to just 
put out your best arguments. And I finally began to notice that what Swami Kriyananda did is that he would just, you know, put out a little teaser, he'd put a little appetizer on the table and see if you were interested. And then if you stepped into the conversation and expressed interest in that subject, then he would give you a little more. In other words, he would, he would test the water. He would either test it intuitively, which he often did, or he would test it by opening up the conversation to see if there was receptivity. And then if there was receptivity, he would offer a little more. When Swamiji taught me to cook, um, I was in charge of the kitchen at what, what that time was our retreat. Now it's called the Expanding Light. Then it was just called the Ananda Retreat. It was up at what's now the Seclusion Retreat. At that time, there were about 30 people living up there. Nobody had kitchens. So everybody got all their meals from the main kitchen. This was 1971, 72, 73. So, and I ended up in charge of that kitchen. I first started out as an assistant, and then the real cook had a family emergency and just left, and I was left in charge. I was a food fanatic. I was not really a cook. You know, I was, I was practically on a raw foods diet myself, and I was just very fanatical is the only word for it. But I liked food. I was interested in diet, and I was energetic, so I ended up in charge of that kitchen. Of course, it was awkward for everybody who ate there because I cooked horrible. You know, just everything I cooked was just ghastly. I didn't really know this because I sort of had this very mental attitude, like if it was healthy, it was good. I mean, I'm still a little like that. If it's healthy, it tastes good to me almost always. And uh, so I would just cook these one after another awful meals. It culminated in, I thought it was a good idea, both economically and for a whole lot of reasons, to eat the produce that came out of the garden. Except in the fall and winter, there were two crops, kale and Jerusalem artichokes. Jerusalem artichokes are these sort of knobbly things that look a little like a ginger root. They're extremely nutritious. We grew them by the ton. Everybody universally hated them. Actually, gradually the crops, which had been abundant, began to fail. And I know they failed because everybody loathed the product. It was grown by our elderly gardener, Hanel, because they were, they were miracle food. I liked Jerusalem artichokes, and I loved kale. I used to eat them raw. I would grate up, and I'd make these kale Jerusalem artichoke salads. I thought they were scrumptious. Every single day for like several weeks, at least one and sometimes two meals would have Jerusalem artichokes and kale. And finally, literally, the community just revolted against me. You know, and they went to Swami and said, my God, what are we going to do about that woman? You know, we're just dying here. But he knew that I was doing my best and was unconscious of it. And it culminated in some big event where I worked all day to make some big casserole, and it just came out horrible. I just didn't understand. I didn't know how. And so Swamiji sort of said, hmm. He kind of just starts this conversation with kind of a hmm. Just like, let's just see if she's even going to talk to me. Well, he said, that casserole today, it was a little bland. Did you think it was bland? I said, yes, sir, I don't know why it came out that way. Hmm, he said, a lot of what you cook is a little bland. <laughs> In just such gentle words. Yes, sir, I don't know why I'm doing my best, you know. And so he saw that I really, you know, I wasn't defensive. I, I acknowledged the truth of what he said. I expressed myself interested in change. He said, well, would you like me to help you learn to cook better? Oh, yes, sir, I'd be so grateful. But if he had found me, even though the whole community was up in arms, if I had been rigid and not ready, 
You know, he would have either just fired me or done something. But he saw that I really wanted to learn. And when he saw that I really wanted to learn, he offered to teach me to cook. And he taught me to cook over three days. And I've told you this story before, but some of you haven't heard it. I, this Swami Nirmalananda was his name. He was visiting. He was a big, heavy-set man. And he was big and he really liked to eat. And he was visiting our community. He was an old friend of Swami Kriyananda's. And Swamiji hosted him um, at the retreat. But he took all his meals at Swami's house. And um, Swamiji had me with him for the whole time that that man visited, from Friday night through Sunday dinner. We cooked three meals a day for everybody. And Swami was going to teach me to cook. I arrived with a notebook. You know, I mean, like I was like really ready Swami is a cook, like, oh, a little of this and a little of that. Oops, that's too much. Well, we'll balance it with this, you know, and I'm desperately trying to write all this down. It was just hopeless. I finally realized this wasn't going to work. And we just, you know, he just let me help him. I mean, help him. You know, I cut an onion, I tear some lettuce. I mean, I never really, to my mind, did anything. And on, by finally, by Sunday night, there was a small group of us. We were sort of sitting around, and the conversation of dinner comes up. What shall we have for dinner? We decided we'd have fruit salad. Seva, who was there, said, oh, well, I'll fix it. And so we said, okay, you can go ahead. Oh, and then he said, oh, no, he said, I'm teaching Asha to cook. He says it sort of like that. Come with me, Asha, we'll make the fruit salad. So we went up to the kitchen and we made the fruit salad. And on Monday morning, I knew how to cook. I have no idea how. I've been a very good cook since then. I just got it, you know. But all of that from start to finish all began with a very tentative question. And the whole thing was dependent. I knew at any point, if I had put up a defensive shield, he would have also stopped. Because it would have been totally useless. It would have just been an exercise in him enjoying his own mouth, just talking. There would have been no communication. There would have just been talking. Right? So that's the system. That's how you work it with people, and that's how you work it with yourself. You just sort of see where things are going. And if, if the doors are closing, then you either have to come around to from another side or you have to surrender the fate to someone else and just let it be. That's just the way it's going to be. I mean, I've often tried to get people onto the path and they seem very interested. But then they'll sort of become slightly defensive. Everything in my life is just fine. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that. You know, enjoy your European vacation. I hope your marriage is happy. How nice that you're buying a new house. Because they've, they're no longer asking for what I might offer, so what is the point? You know, I already know it. Now, in our lesson today, our lessons talk less, do more. You know, the, the essence of, he doesn't touch it quite so much in here, but what he's really talking about is We only have so much energy. And if we dissipate our energy in ways that are um, uh, not actually going to return it to us, then we lose energy. Now, before I go on to that, that, did that answer your question? Yeah, it's a very important question. And you know it's, it's especially important. I'll stop, pause for a moment. Between parents and their children, especially their grown children or their teenage children. I have as I've expressed sometimes, I have very vivid memories of my consciousness at certain ages. You know, I don't really remember the event so much, but I I see myself when I was 10. Um, I I remember when I was 6. I remember when I was 
13, 14, 15, I know what it felt like to be inside of my own awareness, which I found very useful because when I look at people of those ages, um, I remember how self-aware I was and I I want to respect their self-awareness at that point. Um, What was I going to say? Because it's so easy for parents not to understand how self-aware their children are and how independent. My nephew once said to me something really helpful and I, I... it, he said it at an age when I exactly remember when I was 19 and I was contemplating an act, a certain course of action that was in fact impractical and proved foolish. Um, my father, perceiving that it was impractical and foolish, <laughs> wanted to help me understand that it was impractical and foolish, but I just rejected his advice completely out of hand. And it turned out not to be good, but it didn't matter because it set a lot of things in motion and I just sort of rolled on from that. And my nephew, when he was about 18 or 19, said something to me essentially like, you know, my mother is anxious about this thing that I'm going to do because she doesn't realize that I have the creativity and the energy to solve the problem even if it comes up. And she doesn't. (laughs) And that's what my father didn't either by that point because, of course, and this is the irony of it, your parents lose their spontaneity once you're born. <laughs> and I realized that my parents were so, you know, staid and unspontaneous and a little bit drained of energy because of me, my brother, and my sister. That's what had used them up. They were fine until we got there, you know, and then the youngsters have the audacity to accuse their parents of being a little bit less energy spontaneous and so on. But you see, that's how my sister would see her son. That's how my father saw me, essentially, which is, for me, that would be a big problem, my father would think. But not realizing that for me, it wasn't. It was just a circumstance. And very often, parents put upon their children that this is some kind of a big problem. And both of you are seeing the same thing. You're both seeing the potential collapse of all their plans. But for a young person, that's sort of adventurous. And they just don't have the tremendous anxiety because this plan drops and I take another one because they're full of, uh, you know, they can just do so many things that older people find um, anxiety producing. The kids don't, I mean, some of it is stupidity, but also a lot of it is just the sheer dynamism of it. But, but in, in general, it's dynamic when you're talking about generational differences, but many, many times we look at someone and we project upon them our reality and then we try to get them to see the world as we see it. It's also true from the other side when I was taking care of my elderly parents. I perceived their situation as if I had suddenly been transported into their situation and I, I took care of them very badly for a while until I really finally stood in their shoes and saw what their reality was, which was so different than I projected it to be. And then when I began to feel what their reality was, I mean, the most practical side was I stopped sweating all the details. I was running around, you know, trying to get one vitamin or one little homeopathic this or, you know, a certain kind of drinking glass container or something, you know, just like as if it would matter a whit. And then I finally realized that, you know, what they need, what they need from me is just a kind of calm support. And that all these details just don't matter to them. Their minds are not 
there anymore and their bodies were too old and too unwell to really be affected by all those little things. But that's all that we're talking about is the maturity is the ability to see someone else's reality. Fair enough. Even between my husband and I, he's been telling me about the scratching car forever. I think he never believed how completely unconscious I was of how delicate the finish on a car is. I mean, even just something so simple as that, you know? He just assumed it, and I never knew it. (laughs) Now, that leads us into where where we are here. Um, The essence of success is the ability to concentrate your energy. Swamiji has talked about that many, many different times because everything that we do is a matter of generating sufficient magnetism with sufficient force to be able to activate the law of attraction, to be able to overcome obstacles, to be able to persevere in the face of difficulties. And all of that always comes down to a matter of concentration and energy. I was, I learned from um, when we came back from India with um, fabric that we'd had sewn into curtains years ago, a few years ago when we moved into the house we live in now, um, it had all these windows and um, because we traveled to India really often then and we would go to Delhi and there was a particular store, I took all the measurements and I just went to India and I got all the curtains and everything there because it was literally one-tenth of the cost. So I came back with all these curtains, but because I'd used no company here, I had to figure out how to hang them. And for some reason I decided that I would do the job myself. Um, I know less about hanging curtains than I do about the finish on automobiles. But I just decided I would do it. It was madness, but I decided to. So if you go into our house, you'll see that the curtain rods are a lot like this because I hung them all myself. And I had very low standards. You know, if they were sort of up, they were okay. And it was, uh, it was not easy because I don't know how to use tools very well. Rick is smiling because Chidambar had to loan me all the tools and I would say, okay, now there's a big hole in the wall. What do I do now? And I learned to spackle and all the things that you have to do. But... It was, um, it was a very important lesson for me because it was so outside of any skill set I have. It was so outside of anything that my self-worth is dependent upon. You know, I just have zero necessity to be handy with tools in order to feel that I'm a worthwhile person. So it just sort of became like a pure problem without any overlay. And I realized that all I had to do was just persevere. As long as I didn't quit, eventually all those curtains would be hung. And when they were hung completely cattywampus and I had to pull everything out and I had the holes in the wall and then you had to stuff the holes and then you had to do this, then you had to paint it, all these different things that you had to do, you just did it, just one thing at a time. And I came up with the simple phrase that everything is a matter of the patient application of willpower. (laughs) You just had to, because all those little jobs, it was just a question even of like Oh, I can lean over on the ladder and do like this. No, I have to come down. I have to move the ladder four feet over. I have to do this. Oh, I can do it with this tool. No, this tool won't work. You have to come down off the ladder. You have to get the right tool. You know, and it was all just having the patience to just persevere against all those realities. Now, of course, the reason we don't persevere, many emotional reasons why we don't do that, but one of them is we have simply dissipated our energy. And one of the biggest ways that everybody dissipates their energy is just right out through their mouth. You know, it takes a tremendous amount of time to talk. 
And it sometimes, if you're very talkative, and sometimes your energy just gets lost. You, you converse rather than accomplish. And so Swamiji is really trying to get us to become conscious. Um, he doesn't emphasize it here, but the beginning of this discussion tonight was of the difference between talking and communicating. And if we're not really going to be communicating, and I don't mean every single interaction has to be huge and serious. I mean a tremendous part of a friendship is that you just tell people things. You tell people what you just did. I mean, you are a bit of a captive audience here, but I just told you the whole, everything I learned about scratching the hood of the car today. You know, and that's, that's, worth, that's a story worth telling. There's a lot of stories that are worth telling, just friend to friend. Oh, I was coming home today and I saw a beautiful sunset. It was just such a lovely experience. I mean, people like it when you tell them things. It's, it's not always appropriate to keep everything inside of you. Uh, people feel um, hurt if you're not forthcoming. You know, just even just sharing inconsequential things just in order to exchange vibrations. To be too silent sometimes is not appropriate unless you really are alone. But at the same time, my goodness, there's just so much talk that goes on. There's a most extreme example of it is someone who, who works out in the same club that I do. And I don't know wh- who this woman is, but she's obviously a compulsive talker. And whenever she's in the, the um, dressing room, she just talks and talks and talks and talks and talks and talks. And it's not a large dressing room, and she has a very loud voice. And she just talks and 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 talks. She just never stops talking. And she seems to have this tremendous amount of energy. I mean, she, I, mean I can't imagine how much she would have if she stopped talking. <laughs> you know? But it's very... Um, a very appropriate exercise. Uh, sometimes we, we used to do this in Ananda more often than I see it happening now, but when we were more of an isolated ashram, sometimes people would just take a day of silence, even if you're working. And it's, it's fascinating to, to declare a day of silence when you're not alone and just observe how much of what you say really doesn't have to be said and how often if you just wait patiently, everything works out. I, had a, I learned a very important lesson from a man who was a, he was a quadriplegic and I think he'd been injured in a swimming accident and I knew him when maybe he was in his 30s but he'd been injured late in life, like in his 20s. And when he was, uh, it was at some kind of an inspirational camp I went to as a teenager, he was one of the counselors. And one of the things he said that he learned after he became a paraplegic was... Um, he never knew that if you just waited, often things would either come to you or just work out. Because suddenly he could not initiate. And, and he grew, grew tired of always having to ask. You know, it made him feel very... He was embarrassed. And it didn't make him feel strong to always have to ask. But he realized how often if you just waited, he said, how surprising it was that things would just come to you. And it, it was such a vivid thing, it stayed in my mind. I can still see the picture of this man. That was like 40, 50 years ago that I heard this man say that. But a lot of times we're, we're putting out through our mouth all this energy that we don't really need to put out. And also, I had this woman call me just recently from the Mountain View Library. Very simple issue. I checked out a, an audio book for my drive up to Ananda Village. And I sort of remember that the little binder was a little loose and one of the little pieces came out. So two of the CDs were left at the library. Really, I think it took that woman four minutes to tell me that. 
on my answering machine. It was, here's the book. Two, two CDs got, got lost. They'll be behind the desk. Just come and pick them up. That was the message. She went on and on, and then she would come back to make sure I understood, and, you know, that if I wanted to hear them, I had to get them. It became just really interesting to me just to stand there and listen and just think, my, what if she had a complicated message to convey? <laughs> and, and, you know, very often when I was traveling, um, uh, like, let's see what year would it have been, like 1978, um, we, uh, a bunch of us, I still lived at Ananda Village then, which is up in the hills, and we, Swami Kriyananda was doing a big program at the Palace of Fine Arts and uh, in San Francisco, and to sort of build energy for that, um, we had these different little groups of people from Ananda Village who came and toured through the Bay Area from Santa Cruz through, up to Santa Rosa with the thought of drawing every people, everybody to San Francisco. And so we, we did different programs on... Uh, different aspects of the spiritual path. and So there were like five or, five or so of us on each team. And, and so I was teaching um, with several other people, and we would listen to each other speak. And there was this one man who's now become, by now is a really great teacher. I won't say his name. But he was very interesting, because sometimes he was awful. He was such an awful teacher. He was just so boring. And he would take so long to finish an idea and then when he finally finished the idea he would suggest to you other possible conclusions that you might draw and then we'd sort of like beat that idea just to pieces and even though I loved him you know I would just sit there like I once saw a Tom and Jerry cartoon and the, the essence of the, the thing was like let's see who was the cat Tom cat so Tom was the cat and Jerry was the mouse and the mouse was um, keeping the cat awake, and the cat was having to do all these things to stay awake. He would prop his eyelids up with matchsticks, and I remember him taking his eyelashes and scotch taping them to his head. <laughs> you know, just things that stay in your mind. Whenever I'm really sleepy, I always think about scotch taping my... So, you know, this man would talk, and I have a very... Um, especially then, you know, I just... I would like to be mentally stimulated, so if I wasn't, I'd just... This. Then one night... He was magnificent. He was fascinating, and his ideas were deep, and he said what he wanted to say, and then he went on to the next point. And so I had to, like, think, like, how do I, what do I say? I, and so I just sort of said, wow, that was great. And then I said, you've really been working on this, because that was really the best talk you've given. Like, what was the difference tonight? And he said, oh, I put out more energy. <laughs> I said, now there's a clue. Here's a clue. Let's put out a little more energy. You know, a lot of times when we do talk, we're just draining energy. We're, we're not really paying attention to what we're saying. Like that woman calling me from the library. You know, it would have taken just a minute to think, what's the, what's the essence of this message? You've lost a couple of CDs. Come and get them. <laughs> you know, how hard is that to say? But she had to... She had to bring that idea to a focus, which took a little bit of energy. And she was just in the habit of just running words, even the tone of her voice. You know, I'm not singling her out, but it was such a dramatic example. Even the tone of her voice was a little bit like this, and there just wasn't a lot behind it. And so she would just kind of ramble on about the CDs, and then we'd get to the subject of the library desk. And then she would express concern for my welfare because, you know, I was going to get to those CDs and I wasn't going to have them. 
oh, but she had a solution for me. She had the CDs, you know. It's like, <laughs> but you could see, it was just like she was just letting it float out of her mouth. But that habit, it's a really a bad one. It's really a bad one. We have to do what we do with energy. And so one of the really good places to start is just say what you mean, say it well, say it once, <laughs> Pay attention to whether you're talking or communicating. And if you're not communicating, you might as well stop because more talking is not going to make more communication. It usually makes less. And if you realize that this is a simple idea and you're making it a complex one, maybe that's something to think about. Now, let's take a little bit of a break and then we'll go on with this. Um, Swamiji in this lesson is talking also about business environments and he's really making a few very simple, tangible suggestions which are easy to repeat and don't bear emphasizing too much. But just realizing how much, again, in, in office work and in working, how much time is wasted in just idle conversation because people, when they're together, just begin to talk. And another factor of conversation that you observe a lot when you listen is how often people just trade stories. And how often conversation is not really about listening at all. It's just about waiting for the other person to stop so that I can start. You know? And all of these unconscious habits of using speech in ways that are not really useful are one, they foster unconsciousness, and two, they dissipate energy. Um, so it, it's not, again, it's not as if you need to withhold. It's very important. This is another aspect of it that I've sort of learned slowly. I never understood how to have casual conversation. I knew how to have intense, serious conversation, but I never knew, I, I mean, I really had to study, strange as it sounds, how people just talk to each other. And, and then I began to really appreciate, especially women do it much more than men, but, you know, they'll just talk. Oh, I, you know, I went to the restaurant and the centerpiece was just so pretty. And, you know, then afterwards we went out and the sun was shining. It was so nice. I mean, just like no content. But it's just a way of just sharing vibrations and just sort of learning to use speech just as a way of sharing vibrations. And that's not inappropriate as long as one is doing it in a conscious, a conscious way. What we, we have to really be careful about is when there's just this compulsive energy to dissipate like that. And now this is where, in every lesson, no matter how mundane the topic, this is where Swami says something so interesting. And this is the one where he talks about, of course, the tongue, physically. The tongue is very much related to the brain. And he talks about um, if the tongue is tense, you know, it creates tension in the mind. And it it dissipates the concentration. And that there's a a, a very close relationship between the brain and the tongue. And if you... I mean, I've I've never really studied singing, but I've taken every so often a singing lesson. And they'll always talk about relaxing the tongue. And then you start actually trying to pay attention when you're meditating or just when you're sitting still, how much tension one holds in the tongue. And... And how in so many ways, again, we're unconscious. And wherever we're holding tension, you know, energy is locked up. And that energy then is not available for other things. But then Swamiji puts into this lesson this sort of more subtle relationship between the tension that we hold um, in, the, in that part of our body. And it's also, it's like, it's always this anxiousness about asserting oneself. And not, when this exercise that he gives us, that we did 
at the end of the meditation where you relax this whole part of your body that's involved with speech from the throat, you know, through the lips and then internally. And then what he has you do is he has you withdraw it back into the medulla. Now the medulla here um, is the, the, the place where the ego rests. I mean, this is, the, this is where the ego is centered in the body. And the ego, I don't mean it in this sense negatively, the ego is just the sense of individuality, who I am. And he has us withdraw the energy back to the medulla, which when I was meditating on the meditation, what that's about is to just be at peace, to just rest in the self and not feel the need always to be expressing the self but just being able to listen. You know, that was what I was saying about, um, I, I, I said just a moment ago, so much of conversation is people just waiting for the other person to talk so that you can speak. And, you know, I, I, I listen to, um, you know, the ladies' locker room is a great place because the sound is all there. And I listen to these women talk to each other because women talk and talk and talk. And one will tell a story, then the other will tell a story, then the one will tell a story, and the other will tell a story. And I mean, these are acquaintances. These are not, for the most part, friends. But you can just feel, as soon as you're finished, I'm going to talk. And then as soon as I'm going to finish, the next one's going to talk. And, and it's not like it's bad. They're just passing the time. But there's, like, so much self-concern in it. And so little actual embracing of the other person's reality. And this is where, when I was saying going into silence, when you're not alone, and you really aren't going to speak. So in many circumstances, you really are just going to listen. Sri Yukteswar, in Autobiography of a Yogi, Yogananda has those years in my master's hermitage, and he talks about his training with his own guru, and he pulls just a few things out of, like it was a whole decade of training, in an autobiography of a yogi, in a few pages, he gives a few pieces of specific advice from his guru. One of them is, Sri Yukteswar says, try to listen behind the confusion of men's verbiage to what they're really trying to say and answer what they're really trying to say, not merely what they do say. But of course, if your own mind is full of your own ideas, you simply can't hear on that level. I know there was... Um, Swami Kriyananda from different times would sit in a satsang and answer questions. And there was this one woman who, every time he would answer her question, she would just ask another one. And he, he, he said later, it's like he said, she's so full of her own questions that even while I'm answering her, she's simply formulating the next one. And it was like just this necessity to ask questions. And you would think it was the answers she wanted, but she, would, she just couldn't even hear the answers. So, so much of the time, we're so tense in our mouth, you know, that we're just waiting to spring out that we, we haven't withdrawn enough to actually receive what people are saying to us. Just the, the act, and, and, you know, we have these phrases, active listening and so on like that, which is all true, but this is a more, sort of more subtle way of saying it, which is just let go of the necessity to speak and then let what you say spring out of more intuition than just restless mindedness. Um, Someone once said, talking about, well, in this case, it was the difference between the heart chakra and the spiritual eye, taking the feelings of the heart and raising them to the spiritual eye before you express. And he articulated back to me something that was so sweet. He said, well, he said, if I just speak from my heart, 
He said, I may say something good, but if I raise the energy of my heart and attune it with the Christ consciousness, I'll probably say something better, which is a sweet way to put it. So sometimes we may say something good, but if we've really become still, we're likely to say something better. Plus, of course, there's a materializing power to our words. And if we're always dissipating that power, that power never builds up. And if we're always just saying things, that, that just the whole power of speech just begins to dissipate. One thing, people never listen to you. Because if you're just talking too much, they just learn not to listen. But if every time you speak, you've, you've concentrated your ideas and you really just simply articulate them, they have magnetism. And people will actually want to listen to you. Um, Rajasi Janakananda, who was a, a millionaire, a self-made millionaire, used to sit on the board of directors of several very large corporations. And he was very silent through meetings until he really knew. And then when he would speak, everyone would fall silent. And often he would settle everything with just a few well-chosen words because he had really listened. And by the time he brought him, and because he was completely relaxed, there was nothing, no dissipation. And then when it was time for him to speak, he would say what he needed to say, and he would say it well, and it would have that power. And then Swamiji talks about here about Kechari Mudra, which is a yogic exercise related to the practice of Kriya, where you actually turn the tongue back and lift it up behind the nasal passages, and you make a connection with subtle nerves up there. And it puts you into a very elevated spiritual state. I mean, that, that mudra itself creates certain spiritual energies within you. And so he's talking in that case about the relationship of the tongue to more subtle realities. You see, there's so many things going on that we don't really know about. That, that we just think are, are casual material realities, but they're not at all. He doesn't go into Kechari very... Perhaps, unfortunately, this lesson is not the place for going deeply into this. He said, um, the more one can keep the tongue completely relaxed, the clearer he will find his mind becomes. Isn't that interesting? And isn't it so that people who chatter on a lot are often very confused? And often when they're, the reason they're chattering is because they are confused. That the mind doesn't have any calmness. So he, he really encourages us, if we have to do concentrated work, I mean, that's why silence and solitude. And he gives an, the interesting example of Mahatma Gandhi, who had the absolute practice of once a week, he just wouldn't talk. I mean, imagine, given the reality that he was working with, and he just simply wouldn't do it. He would communicate written but he wouldn't speak. You know, it, it's a good practice for all of us whenever we have the chance to just be quiet. Even like in, in social situations where you might normally talk, just make it an experiment. And I don't mean to become... See, sometimes when people are quiet, they become isolated in their quiet. And they sit there like George Bernard Shaw when he was asked by his hostess if he was enjoying himself at her party. He said, myself is all I am enjoying. <laughs> You know, and so there's a way where you're silent, but you're, you're not connected. You can be silent and be quite engaged because you're really listening. You're listening to the intuitive uh, promptings of, of people's consciousness, to the true meaning behind what they're saying. It's amazing what you can learn about people that way. Just by really, you know, leaning forward and listening, but not necessarily having to put in your own thoughts until those thoughts are really clear. 
And in this context, especially of doing good work, creative work, he really is, is speaking to, in your work situations, have time when you're not talking. You know, there, somebody passed around on the internet. It was this very short little speech given, I think it was by the CEO of Coca-Cola. It was some little bit of advice by some very successful American businessman. And one of the things he said is, be very efficient during your work hours and go home to your family. And, and it's really true that a tremendous amount of long hour working is because of a lack of efficiency. And a certain amount of that lack of efficiency is because of idle chatter. And, and just letting yourself talk when talking is not required. But the more we can make the mind clear by disciplining those inclinations, the more we can be very efficient and just go home to our families. I've, um, work expands. This is Parkinson's Law. My father was a great exponent of Parkinson's Law. Alfred Lord Northcote, I think it was his name. I say like this because it's a little tiny book. It's a very old book now. It was written about, it's truisms about the business world. True stories illustrating certain points. And one of Parkinson's laws is... Uh, Work expands to fill the time allotted. And that is a really true thing. If you have 12 hours to do the job, it'll take you 12 hours. If you only have four, you'll do the same job in four hours. And if we really think about our lives in just, in just terms of let's just get this done and let's not spend all this energy around it, just be astonished by what can really happen. And um, it's worth working with. So... I think that's about all that this one has to tell us. Are there any other questions or thoughts about this? Okay. We ask you to use the microphone because a lot of people listen to this over the internet and they can't hear you unless you put it on there. Thank you. I'm just a little confused um, when it comes to... You you mentioned idle chatter. Uh Just talk and talk. Uh But um, I, I come from a culture where you communicate to get to know each other and to right. build bonds. Right. So what is really the difference between... Because you said, you, you mentioned um, unconsciousness and consciousness. Right. But I'm, I'm a little confused okay. between the two. The difference is whether or not... Um, how could I... I, I have a, an acquaintance who talks a great deal and my comment to my husband about her was she doesn't really know there's anybody out there meaning that she just she's talking, even though she pretends to be talking to you, she's never actually in connection with anyone. She's simply talking. I think to, to talk a lot, to get to know people, as long as you're consciously getting to know people, either by giving them your story or by accepting their story, as long as there is a real aware energy exchange going on. And, and you can be very, very talkative. I mean, I've taken long car trips with women friends especially because Ananda Village is a a branch of our life here and it's about four hours away. On many different occasions, going one way or another, I've been in the car for four hours, often with someone I've just met. And we will talk, if it's another woman, we will talk the whole four hours without stopping. But um, all of those times, it's been a wonderful, connected conversation because I'm listening, they're listening, we're responding, we're responding. So it isn't just quantity, it's entirely the quality of how much communication is taking place 
versus how much noise is taking place. Is that is that helpful at all? Still, you're still confused? It's still not clear to you? Let me see if I can think of how to make it better. You know, it's a kind of intuitive feeling. So I, here's what I would suggest. If it isn't obvious to you, why don't you, over the next week, watch the conversations that you have? You know, even while you're having them, you know, ask yourself while you're speaking, um, if you are really feeling that you're actually in communication with someone or if you're just dropping your words into the room. You know, there's a real difference when you talk to someone and, and, and they're really receiving what you have to say or when you're, whether you're just talking. I mean, I chatter a lot more than my husband and I've learned sometimes I'm talking and I'm perfectly conscious of the fact that he's not listening to me. And I've developed the habit as soon as I sense that I just stop. Because it's just pointless. You know, and then some, and sometimes he's grateful that I've just stopped, and sometimes he realizes that he wasn't listening. So I've become very sensitive from there to whether or not people are listening and whether or not I'm listening, even if I'm the one talking. Whether I'm paying attention to whether their mind is with me or whether I'm just babbling on. And when I'm, I know that the person is not really engaged with me, what is the point of talking? And it's, it's a very interesting thing to watch. And I also know sometimes when I'm talking, I'm not engaged with them. I'm just telling my own story for the pleasure of telling it. But that's not a good use of energy. You know, I know they're not listening, but I just want to talk. Then I ask myself, that's not a good use of energy. Just stop doing that. So if you don't know it now... Pay attention during this week and see if you can feel, begin to feel for yourself the difference, I say, between talking and communication. Because communication is when there's a two-way understanding. And again, it can just be charming nothings. You can have wonderful communication about nothing at all because, as you say, it's just your way of getting to know each other. This is what I did when I was a child. This is what I did today. Oh, I saw the most beautiful dress and this is why I liked it. But if somebody wants to know you, be with you, feel your energy, they're perfectly happy. I, I had a woman friend of mine once, I was so, I came home to David, I was so pleased with myself, this is when I was learning to have conversations. The person had described to me the wallpaper in the bathroom of the hotel that they had visited. And uh, I, I genuinely cared. <laughs> because, you know, she cared. And it was just like, there was a time in my life when I would have died rather than heard that conversation. But I'd begun to understand that, you know, this is the way the woman gives me her heart. Because it was beautiful to her and she wanted me to know. So I listened very attentively and I really wanted to know. Good. Yeah, exactly right. So it doesn't have to always be profound. It just has to be conscious. It's a good question. All right. Okay, let's dissipate now for one week. We have no reason not to meet, do we? We'll be we here next week, won't we? Okay? Nothing will interrupt us for a few weeks then. We're up to number 20? 26. And uh, some of the others are really longer. The last few are the longest ones of all, so this was a particularly short one. Advertising, talking. I don't know what the next one is. I don't remember. I hope we'll get back into other subjects. Okay. Thank you.